Charting History, Season 1, Episode 2, The Trico-Fulberth Dispute. Hello, and welcome back to the Charting History Podcast. This episode, I'm sitting down with Amy Longmuir, and we're talking about the Trico-Fulberth Equal Pay Dispute of 1976. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty good too, thank you. I'm pretty good. So, Amy, you are a PhD student at the University of Reading, yeah. and you also have a bachelor's and a master's degree from the same university. What are your areas of research interest, would you say? Um, they're quite broad in, in for some facts. So, I started off looking at the far left and mm. trade unions um, in the 1970s. So I kind of sticked with that period, uh, and then I moved on to equal pay strikes. Um, and now I'm looking at more sort of the British Women's Liberation Movement, Socialist Feminism, how they sort of work together with trade unions, or they didn't, mm. um, and that kind of interaction. Must be really interesting interaction between those two things, actually. Because at a first glance, you'd think they would overlap quite strongly, but I'm feeling there may be tensions, which yeah. hopefully we can get into today. Yeah, so basically you sort of look at it and go, it'll work, and it doesn't work at all. <laughs> Behind that, nothing works at all, so... And what about outside of your academic work? I know you do a lot of work on widening participation things as well. Yeah, yeah so I've done a lot of work um, through uni, working with schools in the local area and, um, and year 12s and year 13s nationally. Um, I went to schools in the local area as well, so I kind of drag them in mm. when I can and sort of show them that you can't get to university, you can you know, go to wherever you want to be without having to worry about where you come from. I imagine that your particular area of history must be something that they feel, the students, I mean, they can really relate to. This idea yeah. of sort of contemporary struggles that affect their own lives. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> As I try to do. Um, I think, yeah, the 1970s is kind of, they always get taught it at school as well. So mm. I think sort of showing different areas within that is really useful. Um, and, you know, equal pay is important. It is. To all the women that are there as well, all the girls that, all the students that are there, they kind of pick that up and think that's something they want to work yes. about as well. So. And I suppose until uh, you actually look at the history of it, I mean, I wasn't actually previously aware of this particular dispute. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not immediately clear just how long the struggle for proper equal pay, yeah. and we'll talk about what that means, <laughs> yeah. minute, has actually been going on for. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's just missed completely in schools as well sometimes. Mm. You just see equal pay as a thing, and then a lot of students that come up are like, great, it's equal assume, pay. But... Yeah, we've got it. Tick <laughs> yeah. that box, whereas yeah. maybe um, not so much. Yeah, and I think they're looking at history and getting to see other things in history is really interesting. So can you talk to us a little bit in that vein, about the background behind uh, legal equal pay, how it became a requirement in law. Famously, the 1968 Four Dagenham strike is given as the the thing that happens, where a lot of them go at the Four Dagenham plant go on strike for changes in their description of how they get paid mm. and their levelling, and so that becomes an equal pay dispute, not properly, not formally. Not formally called one, but it is seen as an equal pay dispute because two years later the Equal Pay Act comes in. So, the 1970 Equal Pay Act is introduced, which says you can get paid for work of equal value, mm. which becomes a problem in itself because equal value can mean very, very different things. Um, it also takes five years for it to be implemented, so it doesn't actually become law until 1975. The government argue that's because it takes five years for everyone to get on board. Okay. Um, so everyone to sort of like to sign on and make the agreements. Um, do you, do you think that's true? <laughs> I'm sensing that you don't. <laughs> I thought they went. We need to give you time because they don't really want to implement it straight away. Mm. Um, the 1970s are chaos anyway, industrially. Yeah. So they're like, we'll just give you a bit longer. Um, so they give them five years, and so on. Tw- I think it's the 29th of May. I think in 1975 it becomes law, and that in itself 
is a huge turning it can be seen as a turning point mm. because it's legally written down that you have to pay them for work of equal value but that means very different things to very different people okay yeah. um, before we talk about <laughs> the idea of equal value versus actual equal pay yeah. uh you mentioned briefly that the 1970s was a very turbulent time in terms of industrial action and labour disputes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? The 1970s is seen publicly as quite a dramatic period of everyone going on strike. They have the binman, like uh, the end of it, so 1978, 79, you have the winter of discontent. You have mm. the binman go on strike. You see all the piling up of the, mm. of the rubbish bags and um, you get basically everyone on strike. And this is a really strong period for trade unionism for a varied of reasons that a lot of people argue about. And... Over and over, you see strikes in the mines that becomes the nineteen eighties, but they start in the nineteen seventies. Um, you see them across the country in different places, different things, and the government really can't cope with the strikes. <laughs> they really just can't <laughs> cope with it. The the um the conservative government up to nineteen seventy four cannot cope with it, and so nineteen seventy four, Labour come into power with a agreement called the Social Contract, and um, that technically makes them allies with the trade unions. Okay. Um, and so I did my undergrad on this, so I had a lot of economics, which was very difficult. Um, but you look at that, and they basically agree to reduce their strike days completely, mm. and they're like, we won't ask for anything for the entirety of the government, which nobody agrees to, apart from the two people at the top of these trade unions. Right. Um, which so doesn't this, really work. <laughs> this doesn't actually happen then? No, not really. It kind of... The leaders of the trade unions are like, this is going to work great, and it just doesn't work. And so they have even more strikes and like that. You see that as across the 1970s up to the winter of discontent, where Labour get defeated in the election and mm. the rise of Margaret Thatcher. And it's that kind of period of of continual errors by some people in leadership that see strikes on the ground. Like mm. So not people at national trade unions, but actually like workplaces are going on strike. Um, and this is, you see one of them in here. Um, they just... They're doing it themselves rather than their trade union. The trade union as a hierarchy deciding to do it. So it's a very localised kind of industrial action that we're looking at here. Yeah. So my dispute, this dispute specifically, is very localised and it's Brentford. It's mm. one factory in Brentford. But you see this across and you see a lot of like grassroots activism. So like I said, the miners earlier, the whole sort of valleys go on strike mm. uh, in 1972. Um, but you see that sort of grassroots He's going. My neighbor's going on strike, so I'm going to go on strike as right. well. That sort of localized, like you say, localized um, disputes and action, um, especially against individual employers at this time. As well. mm. I'm tempted from your description to ask you to co- to compare the 1970s <laughs> to the early 2020s. Yeah. Obviously, we're, we're looking at large yeah. amounts of industrial action at the moment. Yeah. But it seems yeah. to have a very different character. Would you be able to sort of contextualize it against that for us? Yeah. So 1970s, in my head, and a lot of a lot of um, things. It's like the deindustrialization period. Mm. So you have a lot more industry, like factory workers and industry going on strike. Um, and you have that sort of more, um, I don't know the word for it really, but like industrial strikes. Yeah. Which are kind of happening as well now, but you see them more in like services sectors, in, in um, like nurses, teachers. So more educated level. Not blue collar jobs, but more white collar jobs. Yeah. And at this time, there's a lot more blue collar. So there's a lot, there's still a huge amount of people that are working in mines in steelworks mm. in factories um and that kind of difference between then and now um but they're still very much and i think now you see a lot more national union agreements yeah. because of how unions are now based um, yes much more nationally and the ability yeah. to strike is now far more rooted if i'm correct yeah. in the union not localized action yeah yes yeah so this dispute the trico dispute is not a 
legal dispute to start okay. with. So the women ballot themselves mm. and go on strike, um, which is quite interesting. But the fact they ballot themselves is an acknowledgement they have to ballot something. Yeah. Um, but now if they, they have to ballot nationally to be recognised. You have to ballot it nationally to be able to even do anything um, and to get paid mm. because otherwise you're not going to get strike pay. Um, which is really important. Um, and the, these, this dispute gets really lucky in that it gets recognised nationally um, after, the, after the fact, almost. So looking back at the 1970s again, we spoke a little bit a few minutes ago about the overlap between women's rights movements, women's liberation movements, and industrial action. Yeah. And before we dive into this specific dispute, if <laughs> you say a very specific, small, localised dispute, yeah. could you tell us a bit more about the relationship between... Um, gender-based activism, women's activism, yeah. and industrial action at the time. Yeah. So really early on, the British Women's Liberation Movement acknowledged that they have to recognise these disputes. They have to help. Um, and so it's very piecemeal approach to it. They sort of, if they have a women's liberation group in the area, they'll go and send them to help with the strikes. They'll go and help with the um, picket lines and things like that. I think the, it's very divided in the early movement between the middle class, sort of um, the more educated British women's liberation movement. So, for example, the first conference is at Raskin College in Oxford. So mm. you're not going to have a lot of striking women going to Oxford, generally. Like, even just as a place, it's not very welcome for them at that time. But you see that sort of overlap, that they recognise that these women, the women on strike need help. And mm. they need help with money, um, because even if they are recognised by the strike, they're probably going to have something else to do, to worry about at the home. Um, and so they have that sort of hopeful approach to it especially at the beginning of the women's liberation movement and they really try and incorporate them as much as they can and help them out um but at this time class is seen as much more important than gender especially at the beginning of the 1970s in that class they see the, the women's in trico and a lot of other industry industrial action they see class as their main point of dispute because they are working class women angry at something rather than being women who are working class mm. um and not really recognizing that as a point in itself until much later on, which the British Women's Liberation Movement sort of do by the end of the 1970s. They sort of promote that a bit more. So the way in which they're framing um, the women at the Trico Fulbert dispute, mm-hmm. they're framing their equal pay dispute is more in terms of, sort of class than gender, even though yeah. the disparity in pay is rooted in gender. Yeah, so it's, it's one of those things that never quite works. It like goes around in circles. Um, that, yeah, so they see themselves, they go through the trade union movement as a working class activist group almost or a working mm. class striking group um that are women yes. incidentally not really they see that's not their key point and that's i see in this that a lot more that they involve the trade unions and a lot of the other strikes as well will try and involve trade unions because that's seen as the way in which to get better pay mm. um and later on it then becomes a point of gender in itself and this is interesting it's the first actual equal pay strike so for diagonal we seen as a massive um event in 1968 but it's not actually recognised as an equal pay dispute. So we have that sort of disparity between what do we call equal pay and mm. what do we call wanting more, wanting equal wages, um, which doesn't really work in its terminology, but in its, um, in its implementation as to what do they actually demand and how do they demand it. So if the people who actually are undertaking this industrial action are seeing it more in terms of, as you say, in terms of class than in terms mm-hmm. of gender-based equal pay, what was their reception like to the... Uh, the help offered to them, as you say, by the women's liberation movement at the time? So a lot of them, I think, especially in this strike, were quite welcoming of it in the fact that it's help. Mm. And they're not really getting a lot of help. The, yeah. the public aren't 
the national press aren't covering them, so they're not getting seen in that. The local press are quite ambivalent towards them. Um, a lot of the male workers are still working because they don't recognise them as striking in right. the same recognition as that. Um, so they're really getting a struggle in that respect. So I think they see them as a group that can help, but they don't really see them as something they can join, something they can go and be part of. They see it as like an outside help. Yes. Um, more than, yeah, something you can go and be part of yourself. That makes sense. So let's get into the details now, though. <laughs> so Trico Falworth Dispute, 1976. Where are we in the country? We're in Brentford, okay. so not very far away in no. London. Um, very close to Southall, which becomes important later for the amount of um, support they get. It's a very busy industrial part of Brentford. Basically the main road in. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the Great West Road, um, which goes all the way along, right past the M4. And that's the main road into Brentford, and all of it is full of industrial units. Um, the, obviously, Trico is a windscreen wiper factory, but you have Apex, not part of Apex, and you have lots of different industrial action. I think the head of Fiat is there for a bit. Mm. So it's a big industrial place to be. So probably a large history of activism and uh, working class movements in this area that we're looking at. The place itself, not that much. Okay. Surprisingly, this is all surprising to start with. You have these sort of localised places, but generally... The people that work, the people that are working on there, and the companies that are there by nineteen seventy five, nineteen seventy six, have agreed to equal pay. They're pretty much, they're all right. <laughs> they're all right in an industrial way. Um, <laughs> if you go to Southall, you see a massive. So just next door, you see a massive um influx of immigration in Southall. So you get a lot of activism in that respect. Yeah. Which comes important later into the strike, and a lot of the lot of the people working in these factories are also from that like ethnic backgrounds, and so you get that sort of. The colliding of, of different things in some way that they don't really want that much industrial action. Okay. So Trico Falworth is then an outlier for not having signed up, unlike these other companies, as you say, who have sort of, they're going with the act. It's We've gone past the point in 1975 where it's coming into force properly. Mm-hmm. They're an outlier for not having actually institutionalised their equal pay. Yeah. Or pay for equal work. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to the terminology, but... Work of equal value. Work of equal value. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they, they don't agree to it. Um, mm. And they're sort of seen as the outliers, even by the workers themselves. Like, like people living in the area, they're like, these ones haven't signed up for it. Um, and they're sort of seen as a bit strange. And they're one of the few American companies. So they're sort of seen okay. as a little bit different in that respect. But America has already... America has already enshrined equal pay before this point, is that correct? Yes, I think so. Yes. Um, yes, I think 1967. Yeah, but they... I'm not entirely sure why, but they just decide they're not going to do it. And they're sort of seen as one of the companies that hasn't done it yet mm. um, by the people that are working there and by the people that are working at the factories. So the strike itself then, what actually happens? So 24th of May, very important day, there's about 400 female workers and they go out on strike. They go to the park behind Boston Manor Park and they battle themselves to strike. This is because in December before that, the night shift had been scrapped, and so the night shift got more money. Logically, mm. they get more money. Um, but all of them were men. And so they scrapped the night shift, and these men get moved into the day shift with these women, and they keep their about, they reckon, £6 a week differential. It could be £6 a day. Either way, it's a large £6 amount. £6 a day differential, lots of this. It's a large amount uh, of difference then, £6 a day. Yeah. And it's a ridiculous amount of money, especially like especially then. I'm not sure yes. of the equivalency, but it is a lot of money. And even now, £6, if you're thinking every day, mm-hmm. over a month is going to cost a lot of money. Um, and so they realise this differential. 24th of May, they go on strike. There's about 400 of them. And they take their own leadership to decide they're going to go on strike. Mm. And almost immediately, the local union, the Amalgamated Union of Engineering Workers, which is the main one in the factory, recognises them as 
official strikes. Okay. So they get local official status very, very quickly. Uh, and that's really important for what comes later, but also just for their recognition that a trade union is actually recognising them mm. um, as a dispute without going to them first. So that's a really positive reception on behalf of the union for these 400 women. Yes, yeah, so as part of the local union, really, really Yes. Important. And this is AUAW Southall. So they are, they're very active. Mm-hmm. South is a massively active place. And so they bring that in and they sort of like, we'll recognise you and we'll give you support in any way, which way you need, which is really, really positive in that mm-hmm. respect. What about other um, groups, other key parties involved in the dispute? What's the reception like across these other relevant yeah. parties? So the other union in the factory, the Transport and General Workers Union, they do not recognise it at all. Not at all? Not at all. So they're like, nope, not happening. Um, and a lot of the men that are working there are also part of this union. So mm. they're like, well, we haven't got a strike because it's not recognised as a strike um, and not recognised as a valid dispute. So that causes fraction within the factory itself is that a lot of the men are still going to work because they're not going to get strike pay if they go on strike. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Later on, we have the Greater London Association of Trades Councils, um, which is basically an amalgamation of all the London ones, and they come to a big meeting um, every every six months. They're really, really supportive of it as well. They mm-hmm. don't get into it a lot later, so not until September. Um, strike's still going, but they make an emergency meeting, and they decide we're going to support them in any which way they can which is a really good point. It's a bit late in the show by that point, but it's a really good way to pick it up and to, to make it a more London problem. You mentioned that we've reached September now. So from <laughs> May to September, yeah. we've been going for about four months on this strike. Can you tell us a bit about how it develops over time? Yeah, so like I say, it almost gets it gets recognised locally almost. Mm. It takes until the middle of June for the National AEW to pick it up Yeah, because they don't really want to get involved. They realise that these women are still going on strike. They're probably going to have to do something now, especially yes. now the local has decided to support them. So they make it um, official, which means they then get strike pay, which is very, very little, but it's better than nothing. Um, so these women are going for almost a month on donations alone. They have a lot of donation support, a lot of local, um, what's the word, grassroots support across the country. The women go to different places. They get sent, they go to Scotland because Trico has a factory in the north. And they go and they get lots of support from them, so lots of donations and things like that. But realistically, until then, they're literally just going on strike. Um, the summer of 76 is really hot and they're on strike every day, just mm. just waiting. Just waiting for someone to do something. Um, and there's a lot of local negotiation between the company and the AEW, the local AEW. But they very rarely meet with the women themselves. There's normally two women that go with them if they're allowed to go, but generally they, they don't go. Um, so you have this sort of disparity of gender in that respect, is that the women are on strike, but the trade union officials are men, and so they're the ones that go and argue for their equal pay. So they're almost overlooked in their own strike dispute. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, you can't really miss them from the no, <laughs> from no. the from the very outside your factory, and they go they they go on marches through Brentford as well. But mm-hmm. in official channels, it's pretty much just that the uh, male trade union officials are going with them, despite the women being really vocal in that respect. Does that change at all during the course of this strike period, or is that something that doesn't change until a lot later? Uh, it doesn't really change that much. Mm. Um, the strike committee, so the women that go on strike set up a strike committee with the local union, and that's quite influential in and it allows, I think, four or five women to be involved. So that gives them, on a local level and on a, a day-to-day level, a lot more influence in the strike. They can decide who's going to get paid, who's going to, you know, how are they going to organise donations, where are they going to go on these different events, um, and that becomes later on becomes a lot more important and sort of in deciding who's going to decide what. And um, these women get a lot more influence, mm. not necessarily power. Can you talk about any um, 
problems other than the problems you've already listed being <laughs> the, the dispute itself yeah. and the um, gender disparity in who's actually representing the striking mm-hmm. workers. But any um, controversies that arise during the strike, for example? So there's one very nice one that I found in the archive that I didn't realise I'd found until much later. So it's a case of, I've called it the case of Brother Brown, hmm. who is, so Brother Brown is a trade union shop steward, so he's a representative in the, in the factory. He decides that he's not going to support the strike. He crosses the picket line, he intimidates the women on this picket line as well, and so on the 6th of June is the first letter of complaint to the National AEW about him. So this is before the AEW actually decided that it's a strike, um, but they're like, we need to complain about this guy. Um, so they go and complain about him, and nothing really gets done for a while, for a long time, until August, when there is sort of Brother Brown and his the people he's found to be his friends, and who they've found to be his supporters, petition the AEW president, Hugh Scanlon. They say, you know, we can't recognise this as a dispute, you need to help us, why are you recognising this? This is not good. And he sends around, um, in the back of the um, letter, is a petition for about 150 workers that mm. signed saying, we don't agree to this strike. Which is quite interesting in the fact that he's actually gone around to the factory and been like, can you sign this, please? And a lot of the names, if they're, they're either illegible or they're people who are just people on the factory floor. Okay, so, so they're, they're not necessarily AUEW members? or They probably are, mm. because you ha- it's, a, it's a closed shop, so you have to be a member. Okay. But it could be that they're part of the, the other union, and he's just been like, just sign it. Nobody recognises it. Mm. But there is, that's just me suggesting. That's <laughs> not definitely not. Um, but that carries on, and it goes on and on and on until the 12th of November, so after the dispute is finished. The dispute finished on the 18th of October. A month later... The AEW call him to a tribunal mm. and he gets his shop steward card removed. He doesn't actually turn up to the tribunal. He refuses to go. No idea why. He's really one person out of the three people that are called that go. And they take his shop steward card off him, um, which to me is a recognition from the trade union itself that this is an important dispute. Um, and it's a dispute that we recognise as a trade union dispute, not just a gender dispute. Um, and in the archive is actually his card. Which really? I, didn't re- I looked at that. I was like, oh, that doesn't matter. And I went back to it and I was like, hang on, that's actually his card um, in the little in the little folder. So that's really interesting. And I think you know, that kind of shows that it's, it's recognised as more of a dispute for the trade union rather than just a women's dispute mm. at this point. Um, and that's sort of a, almost a turning point in itself, is that the union are willing to go against one of their own shop stewards because of what he's done in the strike. Is that recognition happening more broadly as well outside of the union that it's an industrial dispute not just a gender dispute what about in the media for example how are people externally viewing this dispute so the local media is quite supportive um obviously with all newspapers you get people that are happy and people that are not happy um (laughs) so you get quite a few people that are supportive um it doesn't really pick up nationally as much as you think it would because of how long it lasts um which i think is about 21 weeks but locally, it's seen as something that you know we need to be looking at. We need to support them. They see them marching through Brentford. Mm. Can't ignore the, the papers. Can't can't ignore that. Um, they see them turning away vans and arguing with police officers at the the gates. So that's quite locally. It's quite important. I think nationally, newspapers that are more willing to support equal pay uh, and more liberal are seeing this as something that is important and as a dispute. It doesn't re- it doesn't get talked about by the trade union congress so in the in a wider trade union movement it doesn't really get talked about at all mm. um maybe because they don't want to talk about it it doesn't get to the tc conference but you have that sort of as i said before like a piecemeal approach to who's supporting it and who's deciding to talk about it mm. um even though it is a really significant dispute in that respect because it is showing you that you can showing people that they can go on strike for equal pay 
So the outcome is quite successful, really, for for this localised dispute. Yeah, so the women get full equal pay, mm-hmm. which is astounding for the trade union, yeah. as astounding it is for the women. Um, I think it's written on the um, strike committee bulletin, victory, we've won. They're literally like, we don't know how we've done this, but somebody has decided they're going to give them equal pay. And I think because it goes on for so long, the company in the end is like, okay, we'll give you equal pay. Um, <laughs> and it's one of the very few that actually gets properly implemented as equal pay, rather than just being like, we'll give you more money. Okay. Um, or we'll make you a new job with a different title and we'll call it equal pay, um, which is really, really interesting. And what about the sort of longer lasting effects of this dispute, for example, on the broader ongoing struggle for equal pay? So this strike rejects basically the the, the structures of governmental equal pay, Okay. Um, which is quite interesting. So it, it rejects the tribunal, which is the way in which equal pay should be demanded, which is important in the fact that it it realises there's problems and it shows up all the loopholes of the government policy. Um, and that's continues to 2010 when we get the Equalities Act. Um, and so that's interesting in the fact it takes that long. But there are companies that are having to recognise equal pay mm. um, themselves rather than going through the government. And the tribunal itself rules against the strikers because they're saying, you didn't go to the national AEW, you didn't go to your national union. And so you get this sort of argument that the government is now not recognising equal pay properly. Um, and in trade unions, it gets picked up a lot more. A lot of trade unions are starting to realise they have to involve the women that are striking. Because if you're not going to involve them, you're going to lose popularity. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the 1970s is dominated by a very much male narrative. And into the 1980s with the male strikers. But there's a lot of work on what the women are doing as well. Mm. Uh, and that's really interesting, for me anyway, to see that sort of recognition that women are also doing things. They're also striking. And it takes until 2010, as I said, to get equal pay. But there's a lot more recognition that, realistically, you need to start implementing equal pay. And what about the relationship between the women's liberation movement Mm -hmm. and this dispute? How do those two things overlap? So the women's liberation movement have a lot of debate as to what equal pay is, which is basically what they're doing, what what the strike's doing as well. Um, And so they're trying to understand how you can implement equal pay and what that actually means for women. Um, And so they have a lot of theoretical debate about it, but they also just go to the strike and support them, um, which is really cool. And really, a way of showing that the women's liberation movement are trying to get be broader, uh, and also for for women that are not involved in the women's liberation movement, that there is a group that are trying to help them and mm. are trying to promote equal pay and trying to show equal pay on a lot broader scale. Then, looking forward into later disputes, you mentioned, of course, that you see this transition into more, I suppose, traditionally masculine industrial action mm-hmm. through the seventies and into the early eighties, but. Are there effects resounding from the Trico Falworth dispute into later disputes? I think the key one that you can see is the Grunwick dispute. Hmm. So that starts while the Trico dispute is still going. And it starts in August of 76. And that lasts for about two years. And it's massive. Two so, years? Yeah, <laughs> it is massive. And it's also that brings in a lot of problems with ethnicity as well, because a lot of the women are from a South Asian background. And so they're like, are we part of the trade union movement? Because it's generally a white, they're seen as a white um, institution. And so that sort of follows on, sort of rolls into it. And a lot of the Trico women then go and support them, then go and help send donations. Um, I think they had something like, they had some money left over, so they sent it to Grunwick. Um, and you see that sort of, broadening out and Grumwick gets a lot more media support. Is Grumwick also an equal pay dispute then? Yes, so yes. it's an equal pay dispute, kind of an equal, it's an equal pay dispute but it's also from gender, from gender and ethnicity Okay. Um, and it starts off with a woman being sacked because she's not meet, 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 meeting her requirements and so you see that sort of 
recognition that women can go on strike, which I think comes from Trico as well, mm-hmm. and that the fact they they're the first equal pay act, equal pay strike, sorry, to get recognised by trade unions. So you see that sort of like they can do it, so can we? You yeah. get that bigger, broader, um, that broader thing. And Grunwick is a map massive in the in the in the press and the popular memory. So if anything, Grunwick kind of starts to outshine the Trico dispute in the cultural memory of industrial action. Yeah, definitely, especially for for women's action, women's industrial action at the time. Grunwick and uh, for Dagenham are the two big ones. Yeah. Um, they obviously go to the beginning and the end of, of the, this um, little period. Um, and Grunwick become a massive, massive one because of how long it is. Um, and because the women eventually got on hunger strike. Mm. They have, you know, they get that militancy that is seen in the 1970s yeah. in the industrial action. I'm sensing, though, and correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> that you're, you're quite attached to the idea of Trico as this very formative moment within the development of these disputes. I, th- I, think it, I think it's interesting that at the time it gets a lot of local uh, recognition, a lot of trade union recognition at a grassroots level. Mm-hmm. Later on it kind of gets forgotten. Um, maybe because it was successful. Maybe. Because, tick that box, um, we did that. But um, it could also be because there are then Grunwick and it starts moving into that sort of 90s, a bunch of discontent at the end of the mm-hmm. 70s that become a lot more recognisable in popular memory. So looking back... Looking back forwards, if that makes any sense, <laughs> yeah. um, towards the present and sort of through the intervening decades to now, how do you see Trico linking into the sort of ongoing history of industrial action in the UK? Um, so like I said, it was successful. So it has some, some, some positive light at the end of the tunnel, yeah. um, which I think especially now is quite important in the amount of industrial actions going on, um, that you can, if you stick it out long enough and you get enough support, you can win. Mm. Uh, and you can challenge an employer without having to go through government channels if that is necessary. Um, I think it sort of shows that if you have enough local support and grassroots support, you don't have to always have big support, mm. big national um, corporations or whatever supporting you. You can do it individually. Obviously, it's a very different environment in the 1970s to now with different legislation, especially. But that kind of industrial action can be it can achieve something rather mm-hmm. than just being something that has to happen. I really like the idea of um, equality being achieved by people from the grassroots upwards yeah. that you talk about. I think it's a very emphatic point. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point that I try and bring out in this, is that it is literally grassroots. It's yeah. literally the women going out and being like, we're not having this. And a lot of the support they get is from factories. Um, and you get people sending like £10 because that's all they could get from the mm. factory, which is still a lot of money um, at this time. But, you know, you can you don't have to have big national support. You can just be... If everyone else chips in a little bit, you can support them as well. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm hoping that we see favourable resolutions in the ongoing <laughs> disputes that we have yes. at the moment as well. Yes. Um, thank you for your time today, Amy. That's it. Thank you very much. And we'll see you again soon, perhaps, for something. I mean, I'm sensing you have a lot of stories <laughs> from the 1970s <laughs> there that are we can lot, yeah. follow. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charting History Podcast. This has been the story of the 1976 Trico Falworth Equal Pay Dispute, featuring Amy Longmuir and myself, Graham Moore. If you want to chat to us about the Trico Falworth dispute and keep up to date with everything that's going on here at the Charting History Podcast, you can find us on Twitter at ChartingHistPod. That's at ChartingHistPod. Don't forget to tune in for the next episode of Charting History when we'll be talking to Will Manthorpe about the Pacific Discovery Voyages of Captain Samuel Wallace and Philip Carteret in the 18th century. We'll see you soon. Goodbye.